Self-control, who would you suggest that we um, go to for self-control? Now, it can't be somebody that we've already done. See, that's my dilemma. I couldn't go, you know, like to Daniel and where he refrained from eating, you know, those, that food and different things of that sort. And I couldn't, you know, so who would you go to? I thought I heard somebody say Jesus. Well, that didn't work because he's in the New Testament. Uh, so he's kind of, I guess he was kind of Old Testament, New Testament. He was Old Testament until he died, and then New Testament from there on, I guess. So that's right. But Well, I went to Samson. Because I went the complete opposite. Um, instead of finding somebody that is doing an amazing job at self-control in the Old Testament, I just decided that I'm just going to, you know what, I'm just going to find the guy that's doing the worst job in the Old Testament, and we will just kind of do a comparison of, like, what not to do. Uh, and so that's where we are. We are going to Judges, like, around 13, but we're going to talk a, about Samson. Uh, so, and, and the reason I say I need to apologize a little bit as Father's Day, because, um, uh, you know, we're going to look at a very negative character um, and he never was even a father, and I can just say, whew, that was a good thing, uh, because he would have been a terrible father, I think, uh, but, uh, but he definitely was not good at self-control, um, but I do think that we can, you know, this isn't a, a sermon that is pointed to dads, okay, uh, at least not our dads. I have no doubt there are so many men that we all know that would be nice if they were sitting here, but they're not sitting here, that could use some of this that I'm going to talk about uh, for sure, but uh, that we all can use some of it for sure, but I just don't want you to think, man, he, he thinks we have major problems in, in here. But So we're going to talk about self-control. Well, what is it? Let's try to define it. Um, I looked it up, and in the, in the, you know, some dictionary online said this, the ability to control oneself. In particular, one's emotion and desires or the expression of them in one's behavior, especially in difficult situations. And, and I think that's okay, all right? It's, it's not like great for what we are going to talk about because part of it is definitely controlling oneself. I like that aspect because it is, it is a controlling oneself, governing oneself, having this sense of balance that is in our life about all of the areas of our life. But also when it comes to it being the fruit of the Spirit, so God's Spirit lives in us, it's, it's, there needs to be some understanding that it also is allowing that Spirit in us to control us. So it's, it's like self-governing, but it comes from help of this Spirit in us helping control us and giving them permission to control us, to be consumed by him. You know, often it talks about alcohol, and we'll look at this here in a minute, but alcohol in the Bible, and it says don't be consumed or, or controlled by, you know, alcohol. Be controlled by the Spirit. And so I think there's understanding that there's that aspect of it as well. Um, in order to fully understand, I think it might be helpful too to, to like, uh, look at, uh, you know, like the absence of, of being controlled, you know, like the self-control. And the opposite of that would be, or, you know, the absence of it, not the opposite, but the absence of it would be like in Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight. This is what it says. 
A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now just think about that for a minute. Especially trying to apply it to the time that this would have been written, right? A man without self-control is like a city broken into without walls. That would make you pretty what? Pretty vulnerable, right, to your enemies. So why did they have walls in the first place? Because they were trying to keep people out that were going to hurt them. Uh, and it, it, so the walls were for protection. It was, it was to, you know, give you security. And if your walls are broken down, then you, are, you don't have that security. You don't have that protection. You are very much vulnerable to the enemy. And in our case, who is our enemy? It is Satan, isn't it? And when we don't have self-control, it is as if we just left ourselves vulnerable to him and where he can get in. And so self-control is super important. The absence of it is, is harmful. Um, and it makes you wonder, like, you know, like, well, Nehemiah, if we were to talk about Nehemiah, you know, the, why did he find it so, why did he need to go build the walls of Jerusalem back? Because he knew that they were vulnerable, you know, without that. And so uh, he really felt compelled to do that. And uh, uh, people who don't um, have, they're not good at self-control, are people that leave themselves weak, right? To Satan, uh, to his attacks. Samson was definitely this. And I mean, Samson, you, you think, well, he was not weak, Mike. I'm, yeah, he wasn't. He had some muscles, right? But those muscles came from God. They didn't come from him. They were, they, they were God's muscles. God gifted him with that. If you take the muscles away from Samson, he was a fool. I mean, he was foolish in everything that he did. And we'll see that here in a second. Um, but he had, his walls were torn down everywhere. He had no sense of self-control whatsoever in almost every aspect of his life. And because of that, it ended up, uh, you know, well, we'll just get into that. How about we just talk about Samson? When, when you open up, like, Judges chapter 13, and I'm just going to walk us through this. We're not going to read through this because I want us to kind of, I want us to understand his whole life here, what it, the scriptures say about it. So, so I want you to read it. Maybe you could read this, to, you know, today sometime, but... But I'm just going to kind of tell you the story. So Samson's story begins with an announcement of his birth. Um, and uh, um, the Danonite man named uh, Manoah, which was his dad, um, and his mom, she doesn't have a name. We're not given a name. I mean, she has a name, I'm sure. <laughs> but we're not given a name in Scripture, so we don't know what her name is. But, but it, it, there in Judges chapter 13, verse 2, it just talks about that, you know, uh, they were going to have this child. In verse 3, it says, you, you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. And um, they were to raise him as a Nazarite. And she was to, post, she was to you know, uh, refrain from certain activities, like she wasn't supposed to drink or be around any grapes during her pregnancy. She, she was supposed to uh, not you know, partake of any non-kosher foods. Uh, during her pregnancy. Uh, 
Um, because of all this, Man- Manoah wanted the angel to come back and give more information because they were just like a little bit, you know, overwhelmed by, you know, what God had in store for their child. And they just wanted, can you come back and give us a list? I mean, can you do a better job of informing us what you really want from us? And so an angel did. He came back and, and she showed, he showed himself to her. She runs and gets her husband, uh, Manoah. And, you know, the angel just begins to kind of unfold this information for them. And, and Manoah asks, you know, what is your name? And, and the angel is like, why do you ask me my name? It is too complicated for you to even understand. And then the angel, you know, uh, ends up uh, going up into heaven. And it's at that time, it's like the light bulb comes on, you know, with Manoah. And he just, he just realized that he just was in the presence of God. And he's just like, surely we are all going to die, you know. Uh, and there's just this big event. Now, <clears throat> they were to name him Samson. He's going to be one of the judges. He's going to be a judge for a, quite a period, of, well, not a quite a period, but a period of time. The book, I mean, the book of Judges picks up, it's like it fast-forwards us now to him in search for a wife. And so this is where we're first introduced to Samson as a young man. And he's looking for a wife. Where do you think he's looking? He's looking over the fence in places that he's not allowed to go look for a wife. He goes to look for a wife in the Philistine camp. He wants to marry one of theirs. I don't know why he thought they were more pretty or, you know, more beautiful, but he wanted a wife there. Now, why was that a problem? Because God's law was, was very emphatic about uh, not, in, you know, intermarrying with um, a pagan culture. He didn't want his people to do that. It tells us, uh, about this in several places, but one of them is um, in Numbers. Uh, whoops, that, that's not the right place. Well, I thought I wrote it down. Maybe I didn't, but you just had to take my word for it. Oh, no, Leviticus, yeah. But, uh, but I didn't write that down. Anyway. I'll give it to you later, but obviously God didn't want them to intermarry. Now, when God, there was certain things, I should back up just a little bit, because when Samson was born, part of the instructions that the angel gave to Manoah and his wife is that, you know, he was supposed to refrain from drinking. He was supposed to not have his hair cut. He was supposed to, you know, just had all of these particular things. He was supposed to keep himself pure. God was going to use him. Uh, and he was going to be powerful uh, on God. And so just as it starts off the story, we realize that he is already stepping over the bounds that God has for him with this inner marriage. The parents were against it. They were like, Samson, this is not a good idea. You're not going to do this. But evidently, they didn't put their foot down very well because they end up going with him when he's going to pick out his bride, right? On the way there, he meets this lion. I mean, literally a lion. 
And he ends up fighting this lion and in a short period of time just tears this lion in two. Kills him right there. That shows the strength of Samson. It says this, the, might, the might of the Lord came upon Samson when he did this. And, and so he kills this lion. Later, when he comes back by this lion, in the carcass of this lion, the, the bees have made a hive and honey was, you know, there. And he's eating this honey which is a major no-no. Most of you will know why. Why shouldn't he have eaten honey from a carcass of this lion? Because part of his Nazarite duty was to not ever make himself unclean, to not ever be around anything dead, period. And here Samson is, you know, eating honey out of this. Samson obviously knew that this wasn't right, Because the scripture tells us there in like Judges 14 verse 9 that he did not, when he took the honey back to his parents and shared it with them, he did not tell them that it had been honey taken out of a lion's carcass. Because he knew that he would have been in trouble for that. It tells us in Numbers 6 verse 6, throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body of any kind. And so he was breaking this law, you know, marrying outside of God's uh, uh, chosen people, putting himself around dead things and making himself unclean. Anyway, the wedding feast in Judges 14, he's going to marry this, this woman. And it tells us in Judges 14, verse 10, that it was literally a drinking party. What is one thing that he's not supposed to do? Is drink. Now the the scriptures don't tell us that Samson literally took a drink, but by now you should understand that Samson doesn't really have barriers that he can't cross, right? God puts him up there, but he just does his thing. He does what he wants. Why? Because he has zero self-control. So even though the scriptures don't literally tell us that he drank I'm pretty sure that he put a few down for sure. And actually, I bet that that was what the whole party was about. In the midst of this party, he gives this riddle, right, to these people. And he's talking, the riddle has to do with the lion uh, that he killed and, and the, the honey that he got out of it later. Um, and it really stumped them. They wanted, and there was this big bet that was going on, you know, that if you figure this out, I'll give you so much money. If you don't figure out, you've got to give me so much money. Samson knew. By this time, you also ought to know that Samson has this arrogance about him that is just huge. And he's just confident that there's no way that he's going to lose this bet, no way they're going to figure this out. But what he didn't count on is that they were going to go to his wife and get this information out of her, right? Um, And so they go to her, and she ends up spilling the goods. They end up coming up with the riddle. It makes him so mad that he goes out and he kills like 30, I think, 30 or 40, 30 uh, uh, Philistines just to get their money from them to pay his debt. Now, do you think that that was God's plan, or is that Samson? And do you think there's not a little bit of something 
that's not quite right about his temper at this point either. He was definitely a, a, a poor loser in the midst of this. I read through Samson and I can't, I mean, I was telling Keith in Sunday school, like, this is my least favorite character of the Old Testament, to be honest with you. I've always just had a tough time with Samson. And when, he, when I was a kid, he was like a hero because why? Because as a kid, I looked up to people that have muscles, right? But Samson, that's the only thing going for him. And, and again, it's only going for him because God gave him that ability of strength. That wasn't his own, but that strength went to his head. Uh, and it's just made him into some kind of crazy man. So he goes and he kills these men, gets their money, steals it from them, and pays off his debt because he didn't like to lose. Now, uh, they were very upset, and they end up killing his wife and his father-in-law. Can you imagine this? That upset Samson, because, you know, Samson is not going to have anything to do with that. He goes and grabs a bunch of foxes, so evidently he runs fast too. He gathers these foxes, ties them by the tails, lights them on fire, and burns all of their crops up. And Samson is just like this. He's just like always out of control, which is what is our topic? Self-control. He has zero in his life. Samson ends up going into hiding after the midst of this because they are on a rampage. They are going to do away with Samson if it takes every man in the Philistine uh, countryside to do it. But Samson hides out in Judah. The Judeans, they are afraid of him being there. They're afraid of just all of this, you know, uh, bringing all this pressure upon them, what the Philistines might do to them, and they don't want him there. They tie him up with new ropes, and I bet they tied him up with a bunch of new ropes, right? Uh, and they were going to deliver them over, or he did deliver them over to the Philistines, but the, the, the might of the Lord came upon Samson again, and Samson just breaks them like cords, like flax uh, cords that have been burned, I think is what the scripture says, just breaks them in two. Now at this point, I think it would be good to, to just note this. God, was God always keeps giving him this power because God's pleased with him? No. God keeps giving him this power because God had already decided long before that God was going to use this man. And one thing that we've learned even through like the experience with Pharaoh or any of these people in the Old Testament God is sovereign, and God is going to do what he's going to do and accomplish what he's going to do, and he can do it through anybody. So God is, God's not, like, protecting Samson because God is pleased with Samson, and he thinks Samson is just, you know, uh, is, is doing a great job at being a humble servant of his. God is just, his whole intent of of choosing Samson in the first place was to get a control of these Philistines and to teach a lesson to them, and he was going to do that anyway. But Samson, 
he breaks these cords. He ends up going out and getting the jawbone of a donkey, again, touching a dead thing, right? And he slays a thousand Philistines in just an afternoon with this jawbone. And what does he do after that? What does any, like, very cocky person do after they win something magnificent? I don't know, Super Bowl, whatever it would be, I don't know. You know, the Indy 500. What do, what do people do if they're really cocky? Well, they go party for sure. But you know what he did? He goes to Gaza, Gaza and he hires a prostitute. That's what Samson does. By the way, as disturbing as it is, what day is human trafficking, sex trafficking, worse than any other day in uh, the year? Super Bowl. You think there's a coincidence there of just the arrogance of money and pride and victory and I don't know. What creates that anyway? But that's what Samson does after he kills a thousand of them. He goes and hires a prostitute. It's just endless, this craziness of this, all this. By the way, I missed over the fact that the first woman that he betroths or is married to, uh, and his father-in-law ends up giving her and having her marry another guy while he is away hiding for a period of time uh, before they end up killing them. But this is just endless. It even goes to Samson decides he's going to marry another person, and that's Delilah. This part of the story you probably know pretty well, be my guess, as you grew up. I don't know that I know anybody who named their daughter Delilah, right? Um, just like we don't name our children Jezebel um, for a reason either. But he marries this woman. I'm sure she was, you know, a knockout, very sweet lady, but he was in love with her. And they uh, bribe her, you know, his new wife, to find out what the secret of his strength is. And so she's just, you know, doing her plea, um, however she seduces him and gets information out of him. Uh, she is doing her thing and, and finds out that, or he just tells her that if you tie me up in like bowstrings, then I lose all of my power. And so and that night when he probably passed out, would be my guess, right? Because how do you not wake up when people are tying you up with bowstrings? Um, but when they tie him up, then she hollers and they come in to, you know, get uh, Samson and put him in prison or whatever they're going to do with him. And he just breaks it. And you would think that that would be the end of it. I'd be like finding me a new home, right? At that point, I'd be terrified to live with this woman. But uh, this thing just keeps going on. Oh, you got to braid my hair. And they braid his hair and they come in and take him and he just, you know, breaks it loose. And, and it's on and on. But finally, this, this guy is so smart, he finally tells her the truth. If a, a razor cuts my hair and is cut off, 
then I will lose all my strength. Now, why would Samson do that? Does that not give us an indication of the ego that this man has? I think he really thought that the strength was lying within himself. Like, he possessed this. Like, like I have gone against God so many times, done my thing so many times, he's, I still have this power. I could never lose this power. That's what I think he thinks. I kind of think that that sometimes can be what we think, is that we can become so, I don't know, confident, but we have no right to be arrogant. We have no right to be. But he does this. They cut off his hair. They come in and they capture him and he has zero strength. What do they do? First thing they do is they gouge out his eyes. I think that they just, if he ever becomes strong again, at least he doesn't know where I'm at. You know, I mean, they gouge out his eyes, make sure he cannot go any direction or they can't, he can't get away from them ever again. And the story just gets really sad really quick. But it also just makes you realize that this was just, it was eventually going to come, right? And he is eventually is brought out and he's tied between these two pillars because they just want to mock him. They're having this big celebration. I don't know how long he had been in prison at this point, but they kept him alive just for mocking reasons and they are just chaining him up and they're just mocking him. And at that point is the first time we ever see any hint, any indication whatsoever of humility in this man. And he prays out to God, and he seems to understand what brought him to this place, right? And he prays that God would just give him strength one more time. And God does, and God brings, you know, allows him to just bring these pillars down and kills more people that moment, that instant, in his death than he killed in his life. But the only thing that that really points out to us is just how amazing God is. We should never read the story of Samson and think that he is our hero. Or to think that he can teach us a whole lot. He can teach us how to to die well, okay? But he can't teach us much about how to live well. He can teach us what happens if you live with arrogance or lack of self-control. But that's the story of Samson. I want to spend the rest of our time just talking about life for a moment here. And as we talk about life, talk about this topic, this concept of self-control. It's a tough one. It was a tough one because it's not black and white. I want black and white things. I want like, don't do this, do this. You know what I mean? This just, just keeps self-control like you can do it, but just under... Like, you got to keep a balance of some sort. you got to govern it a little bit. <laughs> That's kind of hard to, for me to define for us. But I'm going to do my best. So let's just talk about this for a little bit. I'm going to break it up in this way. We're going to talk about where self-control needs to be applied to our lives. Why self-control is important, which we kind of already kind of went through. 
And we're going to end with this a little bit of helpful advice to us about self-control. I'm just going to combine the two. And so really it's just two points. You know, where self-control needs to be applied to our lives and why self-control is important. So here's the question for the day. It's just simply this. What walls have you been neglecting in your life? Remember the Proverbs? That lack of self-control is like a city whose walls have fallen. So I just want to ask you, what, what areas of your life have you been neglecting? What areas of your life have started to come to ruin? Because we're in this renovation aspect of our series and we have been renovating the church, and we've been looking at these uh, fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of the Spirit. But as we look at self-control, I think it's really important to understand that um, we need to make sure that we aren't neglecting areas of the wall around us. And what, how many types of walls are there? Or maybe not walls, but how many sections of walls are there? You know, around Jerusalem, they had so many gates into that city, right? Um, and I just see that as in our life. We have so many areas of our life to govern. We, are, we have, and, and I don't know, how, and we could come up with a bunch. If you're in school, you got like the school stuff, you know, with studying and making sure you meet deadlines. If you're a teacher, you got this going on. And, you, you know, if you're a dad, you got this going on. If you're a your parent, I mean, a, 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 a spouse, you got this going on. You got all kinds of aspects to govern. I just want us to talk about a few. We can't talk about them all. But self-control ought to be applied to all of them. And if you're not applying self-control to all of these areas, then you're letting one being neglected and being run down. And that's where you're going to be weak for Satan to come in and to really cause havoc to your life. But we're just going to talk about a few. Here's the ones that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about eating, because you definitely have to have self-control in eating, right? Drinking, sex, and violence. Okay? So let's talk about eating. Really, I don't want to talk about eating. Um. Fortunately, and I'm so fortunate, I started a diet two weeks ago, so I feel a little bit better about talking to you about this. I was 50 pounds overweight. Now, I know that most people don't know that about me because I think it's because I have a long torso, but I'm able to hide my weight better than most. You know, Jeremiah's got me on this, like doing workout and setups and stuff like this. One of the, This guy that has us do one of these things, I mean, we're doing like crunches and all these things. One thing he has us do is this sucker gut in like this. I guess you have muscles that cause when you do that. But that's the only Samson muscle I have is the sucking my gut in because I do that like nonstop all the time, right? Uh, to hide my weight. But I don't have a problem eating a lot. I have a problem eating all the wrong things. So Lori had been reading this book to us. We decided to go on this, this diet. It's a no-carb diet. The moment she read that sentence, I was just like, what do you eat? Literally, I mean, what do you eat? It, it has to say zero carbs. Is there something out there that says zero carbs? I didn't even know. 
And I had no idea. My diet was 99.9% carbs, uh, for sure. How many of you think overeating is wrong? Just a couple of you? <laughs> you know, the Bible doesn't really say much about this. I'm just, to, in fact, really, directly saying something about this, you would see Proverbs 23, verses 20, 21. Proverbs 20, 23, verse 2. So it's the same section of Proverbs. And that's about all that you're going to get. Everything else is just like taking care of the temple of God, you know, those kinds of things. But that's kind of indirect. Uh, so the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about this. But here's what I do know. I do know that if I don't show self-control when it comes to my eating, it gets out of hand. I can't just eat one donut. I have zero self-control. I can stop when they're gone. I'm, that's when I stop. And, and what I know is that when I am in shape and when I'm eating healthy, which has only happened a few times in my life, but when those times happen, I always think, why would I ever want to go back? And the reason is because I always feel so much better and I have so much more energy. I want to do things. But when I'm, when I'm eating all these carbs, when I'm, when I'm doing everything I shouldn't do, I have zero energy. I sit down instead of watch TV, I just sleep. It, it puts me to sleep. I can't read a book. It just puts me to sleep. I went and had a sleep ap apnea test and my doctor brought me back in, the worst wasted $500 I ever spent, right? Uh, it was one of those home studies. He comes in and he says, Mike, you, you pass. I was like, Doc, how is that possible? I mean, I wake up a zillion times at night. I quit breathing, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you're, you're kind of overweight. <laughs> what? You mean it's my eating? All I'm getting to is that it affects my health, my mobility, my opportunities. My opportunities. It's kept me from doing things I enjoy, like going elk hunting in Colorado and things of this sort. It affects my self-esteem. It affects my relationship with Jesus. And you're like, whoa, what do you mean? Relationship with Jesus? I thought the Bible doesn't really say anything about that. If I think I should have self-control in this area... And yet I just choose to not. I just let the wall of, of this aspect or area of my life just, you know, not be attended to. Then it does affect my relationship with Jesus because I'm not doing what I feel like he wants me to do. Isn't that what the Bible calls sin? Knowing what you ought to do and not doing it is sin. You just go to James if you want to find that. And so... It's just one of those things that, that we need to have self-control in. But there's not a lot the Bible says about that. So let's just go to something the Bible says a lot about, about drinking. Oh, my goodness. If we were to actually read scriptures on this, we would be here all night long. But Leviticus 10, 9, uh, Numbers 6, 3, Deuteronomy 29, 6, Judges 13, 4 and 7, 14, Proverbs 21, 1, 31, 4, Isaiah 5, 11, uh, 2. Uh, I mean, my list is so long, I'm going to stop there. Just know that 
this subject, the Bible does talk a lot about. But it is complicated, though, because the Bible talks so much. I mean, like, so much in the Old Testament, so much in the New Testament that God says, do not get drunk. Do not do it. But the Bible also doesn't say just don't do it. Right? And I like black and white. I wish it would just make up its mind like either okay or not okay. Because remember, I can't have just one donut. (laughs) And here's the thing. The scripture doesn't forbid a Christian from drinking beer, wine, or any other alcoholic beverage. But it does say do not get drunk. In fact, there are some scriptures that, like Ecclesiastes 9-7, it says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Amos 9-14 discusses drinking wine from your own vineyard as a sign of God's blessing. And some of you are like, yes, right? Isaiah 51-1 encourages us, yes, come by wine and milk. But then we have Ephesians 5, verse 15, it says this. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. Remember, we don't want to be like Samson, such a foolish man. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's important, right, to know what God's will is? And do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what debauchery is? I looked it up for you. The literal definition is uh, lavishness. The act of spinning or using something excessively. Especially that results in sinful license. So, do not get drunk with wine, for that leads to excessiveness. It leads to lavishness. It leads to drunkenness, right? But be filled with the Holy Spirit or the Spirit. God wants us to be in control and not allow something else to control us. That's, that's the worst thing about alcohol is it makes addicts, and an addict all of a sudden is not controlling anything. They think they are. They say they are. But we all know that an addict is controlled by the bottle. It's controlled by what they're putting in. And no longer are they making the rules. No longer are they making the guidelines. They have zero self-control in that area. So I'm just going to tell you something I've never said from the pulpit. Lori's going to like probably be upset at me. I like alcohol. I do. I've liked it since high school. I think it smells good. I think it tastes good. Um, I would, yeah, I just like it. But please don't turn me off yet. This would be one of those things, if I was a politician, I'd be terrified that that would be what would make the billboard, right? But I have not drank it since i become a Christian. Now, it doesn't mean I haven't taken a sip because I don't want, you know, 
to be zapped by God, but if I have taken a sip, it's just a sip. And if I have, I can't even remember when. But that's 30-some years. Somebody that really liked it. You know, I didn't become a Christian. I was 21. I had my fair share of it, for sure. Now, why have I not? Well, the number one reason is I married somebody that would kill me if I drank any. So if I did take a sip, I guarantee she wasn't in the room, right? The second reason is, is because I chose to go in ministry. And I can't, I can't figure out how to balance it. I can't figure out how to use it to glorify God. And if I can't use it to glorify God, then it has to be not okay for me as a minister, right? I, I think that there would be a few of you, like, if I knew you well. And see, that's the thing is, is, I would have to know you so well, I would know for sure it really doesn't affect your conscience or anything. And I've learned enough to know that I cannot ever really get to that point. I would actually know that. You could even tell me, oh, that doesn't bother me, Mike, but internally, that bothers you, right? Just because I know how much it bothers me. I know some ministers that drink. I do. I even know some people that just got out of Bible college that drink. And if I know that, it affects me. I mean, I know the Bible says that it, it only, you know, gets, does away with getting drunk. But I know that when I, when I come across a minister that drinks, my respect for them instantly diminishes. I, it just does. I, I, it's not that I, I have, you know, I don't want it to be, but that's just the way it is. I, they lose credibility in my, in my life. Um, to me, if they can't control that, then what other things can they not control? What other things do they, you know, give in to? And, and so there's just this issue, right? My biggest thing is, like, this attitude. Because here's, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, Paul is dealing with this. Cause, and it's not about drinking, it's about eating food. Uh, and in their day, you just have to understand, you have to go to the market to get your food every day. You didn't have refrigerators and, and all of these things, and so and freezers and such. So you go to the market, and sometimes the meat would come from, like they would, they would sacrifice not only to the, the one true God, but sometimes a lot of that meat would be sacrificed to other pagans. It would be, you know, false gods. And that was real hard for some people to just get out of their head. And, and you, you know, there's, this, there's people like that. You should know that there's people like that about drinking, too. But, but, uh, and so when they went to the market, they would have to know, was this food, was, was part of this food used to sacrifice to other pagans? Because if it did, it, it defiled their conscience. They felt like that they were doing something wrong. They couldn't eat it. And Paul was trying to help them understand that God just made the animals. And, and an animal is not clean or unclean. Okay? And so it doesn't matter if you eat it. So Paul was trying to help them understand that. But listen to his logic, though, with that understanding. Let's read through this. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. Super important. What knowledge? The knowledge that meat is meat. And it's just an animal, okay? Not all possess that. 
And so he says, but some, though through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. They feel like they have completely did something God did not want them to do. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who has... who have knowledge eating it in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to an idol? I mean, I'm not reading very well, but do you understand what he's saying, right? Somebody, be careful, because if somebody sees you eating it, even though there's nothing wrong with it, and you know there's nothing wrong with it, if they see you eating it, and they think there's something wrong with it, they might be encouraged to do what is wrong against their conscience. And it's just because of you doing what you're free to do, but you not care about that. And he goes on, he says, and so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother, very important, thus, sinning, you end up sinning against your brother, because you don't care, maybe, or you just aren't aware. And in other words, he's saying you are your brother's keeper, right? Sinning against your brother and wound his conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ himself. For us to ever have an attitude that, hey, I'm free to do anything I want, because there's nothing bad about this food. There's nothing bad about drinking. We're just not allowed to get drunk. It can apply to either one, I'm just saying. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So how careful do you think Paul is about how he eats food and where it comes from, especially in a public setting? Now, I... Should, should not this same logic be applied to me? And for me, I answer yes, absolutely. I can't get away from this. As a minister, I can't get away from this. Um, and I just have to realize that I, I have to control this because people that I care about could be injured. And why would I go into ministry in the first place if I wasn't concerned about, you know, people's walk with Jesus. Why would I go into ministry in the first place if I wasn't concerned about being my brother's keeper? Right? And so I just accepted that as a minister, I'm my brother's keeper. As a minister, I have responsibilities. And so therefore, I have to give up some of my desires, even though I could do some things that are free for me to do, but I just choose not to. This is my attitude. 1 Corinthians, all of these are pretty much Corinthians because they evidently had an issue. But uh, chapter 10, verse 31, it says, So, whether you eat or drink, because it could be applied to either one, right? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I say to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking, this this should be underlined, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What was Christ after? Christ was not after having his own advantage, doing his own thing. He was after doing what was right for everyone else. How many times could Jesus have said anything? I mean, just like, just knock it off. I'm going to do my own thing. Jesus never did his own thing. He did everything that was for the benefit of saving others. I, seek and to, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's his attitude. And that's what Paul is just saying here is that whatever we do, whatever we eat or drink or anything, that we should do it for that way. So it is a minister's duty, my opinion, that uh, you refrain from drinking because I can't figure out how it could ever bring glory to God. Like, I see that you have a freedom, like you could do it and not sin if it was just you and God and that's it. But I don't see how you can do it in public or with other people to know about it. And it actually, everybody be like, oh, I just feel like I want to glorify God now. <laughs> I think it would be dangerous and could be completely the opposite way, though, where people lose their respect for me, they lose their confidence in me, and therefore it affects their relationship with Jesus. It could cause them to do something that they felt like is defiling themselves, you know, and they use me as their excuse, their permission to do something. So that's my list. So I desire to show self-control. And self-control isn't easy. But it is important. So we should have self-control in eating. We should have self-control in drinking. God calls us to have self-control in our sexual conduct. Christians are commanded to not allow their bodies to master them. In other words, just as alcohol can come into us and therefore we are influenced by that alcohol, right? We are altered in some state and being controlled in some way by that. So can we be controlled by desires within us. And God has given us these desires, these sexual desires, and if we let them control us, it ends up becoming, we can become addicts in that aspect as well, right? And it's because we just give in to those desires. We, let, we don't practice self-control in this area. We just give in to them, and eventually it becomes controlling to us. That's why in 1 Corinthians, again, because I'm telling you, this church had issues. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, all things are lawful for me. In other words, he is under Jesus. He is saved by Jesus' grace. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all. But, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach. There's that food thing again, right? And the stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Body is not meant for sexual immorality. Because the reality is, is all of a sudden he jumps to sexual immorality. I thought we were talking about the stomach. He's talking about desires. There's desires, food desires. There's 
there's desires that come from drinking. There's desires that come from sex. They're all interrelated, and all these passages could be easily interconnected, and that's what he's trying to do here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Our relationship to Jesus is our number one priority, isn't it not, church? I mean, isn't that what we have given ourselves to is we have given ourselves to Jesus. We want to be controlled by the Spirit. That's why we were given this Holy Spirit, to develop these qualities in us. And it goes on, verse 14, it says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Huh. And he says, never. Did Samson not do that? Just because he couldn't control himself? He allowed his passions with Delilah, with that prostitute, to cause him to end up giving up God's power. He just told him the secret because of all these things just building arrogance in him and building a barrier between him and God. And he eventually gave it all up. And that's what we all see happens in everybody's life when we don't show self-control in any of these areas that we're talking about. Your walls become weak. Satan attacks, just like Samson. And eventually you, you are in prison, a spiritual prison, and you're wondering how I ever got here. How did I ever get to a place I lost my family? I lost my health. You know, I lost my self-respect. I lost my respect from my friends and my neighbors. How did this happen to me? And you just have to go back to when you decided that self-control was not your thing. That you just decided that you could handle it. Verse 16, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two have become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your bodies, Paul says. In other words, show self-control. Make God look good. Don't, don't make it about you. Don't give in to what you want. Make it about God and what God wants. Use your body. Use everything that you have to bring glory to him. Unless you want to end up at the end of your life figuratively, figuratively chained to two pillars with your eyes gouged out and wondering, how did I get so much regret in my life? Because that's where regret comes from. Practice self-control. How important is it to practice self-control? It's important. By the way, it is practicing. I mean, none of us are very good at this. But we keep practicing because we see how important it is. If I don't practice self-control, my walls come 
They just, they are tore down and Satan gets in so easily. I am constantly repairing my walls around me. Are you not? Because I'm constantly struggling with this thing, self-control. But it is so important for us to be people who practice it. First Corinthians, we're almost done. Hang in there with me. We're almost there. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises, what do they exercise? Self-control in all things. They have to watch what they eat. They have to watch what they drink. They have to watch whom they are hanging out with, right? Because it all matters. It all matters. What you put in your body matters. Everything matters if you're an athlete. So you have to practice self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. They do it, all of this, because they get a gold medal. They put in a a safe somewhere and they never get it out until the grandkids want to play with it. But we have so much more incentive for what we are doing. We're showing self-control because something we are we are trying to gain something that is imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly is what Paul says. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and I make it under control. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Which is actually on my why I don't drink list. I don't really trust myself anyway. I like it too much. Or at least I did 30 years ago, and I'm pretty sure I'd pick up right where I left off. I'm going to give you a little helpful advice and then I'm going to close this out and we'll move into communion. My advice is it's just simply this that if we're going to be good at self-control then we have to realize that our minds are our it's our biggest weapon. That's why like in Romans chapter 12 it says uh, um, do not uh, um Conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Therefore, you'll be able to judge how to, you know, glorify God. It tells us in Philippians something about, you know, whatever you think of, think about these things, things that are lovely, pure, noble, righteous, you know, honorable, all of these things. These are the things you think about. Why? Because what you, what you do here is whether you will win at this, this thing called self-control. What you do here will determine whether you are a, a foolish Samson or an amazing, like, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or something of that sort. And, by the way, there's a marshmallow test. Now, this is... I feel like I needed to give you something that is outside of God's word, that supports God's word, so that you see that there's science with this. Okay. So this, this researcher, he took all of these children, and he's going to do this marshmallow test, and it's all about self-control is what it's about. So he takes half of the children in you know, one area and half of the children in the other area. And on one side, they, they all got a marshmallow. They each got one marshmallow. They were told that if they would just 
They can eat the marshmallow right now. They can eat it any time that they want. It's theirs to eat. But if they will just walk with them through this exercise, uh, if they make it through without eating their marshmallow, they get an additional marshmallow. So they get this reward, okay? Um, so on one side, they called it the, the, the cool aspect of the marshmallow um, therapy. And the other side, it was called the hot aspect of the marshmallow therapy. On the cool side, what they were told is just put your marshmallow down and just, I want you just to focus on the marshmallow, the outside of the marshmallow. What is it, what does it remind you of? What is it, what is some things that we could come up with that, that just looking at the outside of the marshmallow, the, the cool side of the marshmallow, right? And so they were like, oh, it looks like a cloud. Yeah, it looks like a, it looks like a cotton ball. You know, one little girl says, that could be like a footstool for my dollhouse. You know, like those footstools that you have in your chair, your recliner chair. And, and, and one was like, it could be like a trampoline for your doll, you know. And so they were just looking at all these things. After they got done with this, they were asked, you know, like, were you ever tempted to eat it? And they were like, no, it was a trampoline. It was a footstool. It was a cloud. It was, you know, these things. On the other side, they had the hot aspect in this other classroom or whatever, and they were asked to just focus on the, the hot side of the marshmallow, the inside. And so they were just to focus on, like, you know, when you pull it apart, how it gets ooey and gooey. And, and they were to focus on, like, you know, having, having it over a campfire, and you get it hot, and it starts melting, you know, the the chocolate, and you scrunch, you know, two crispy uh, graham crackers together, and what it smells like, and, you know, these different things. And at, and at the end of that, they would have asked them, you know, like, were you ever tempted to eat it? But almost all the kids have already eaten their marshmallow by then. And so they didn't get their second one. And literally, this doctor decided to take this and, and extend it later, like, in life, just to see how people were going through life and how well they fared. And the reality is, is when you are, when you are trained to see things on the cold side versus somebody is training their minds to see things on the hot side, it makes all the difference. And so it's no wonder why the Bible is just constantly telling us, do not conform to... The world, because where does the world want us to live? On the hot side of things. So, you know, when it comes to eating, if you are somebody that is controlling yourself in this aspect and doing well, be my guest. I'm pretty, like, super confident that you're not sitting around looking at food with the ooey gooey and the smells in your mind constantly. Let me tell you, that was the hardest thing for me is that I was constantly walking around just thinking about what I was going to eat next. And that right, Devin? Devin knows me. He's like, every time we get together, the first thing he says is, you, you hungry? <laughs> And I'm constantly thinking about what's in the cupboards. And I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what I'm going to grab as a snack before I even get to the TV. Whereas now I've started trying to train my mind to not even 
think about it because you can't have it. You don't even get it, so quit thinking about it. And let me tell you, I feel like I have more self-control right now in a week and a half of training my mind than I felt like I've had in years. How do you think that applies to drinking? I mean, if you're constantly thinking about just pouring, you know, and washing the bubbles and in a hot day, oh, wouldn't it be good to have a beer? I like it when we hang around and we're all, you know, the guys are standing around and, and right before a game and we all have a beer in our hands and, and you know, before, before the game and we're just kind of yakking. I mean, if your mind is like constantly on that hot side of stuff, how much harder that would be to control it, right? What about the area of sex? I'm not going to describe that one, okay? But Jesus said something about that. What does he say? He says, you have heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. And all of us know that that's wrong. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, everyone who looks at a woman on this side of things, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out if it, and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to throw, be thrown into hell. And all Jesus is trying to help us understand is what I'm trying to say here. It's how you are thinking. If you're walking around with lust, there's a good chance you might in, in a right circumstance, right situation, you might commit adultery because you've already trained your heart and your mind to want that. And you just have to be very careful. Jesus was expressing the power that is within the mind. And Samson, even though he had muscles, he had a marshmallow brain, didn't he? Second Peter 1, I love this verse, and this is our verse that paints our picture. Every week we've been trying to paint a picture of when we let the Holy Spirit develop these qualities in us, we become like this lighthouse. Remember the lighthouse? This is our lighthouse verse for the day. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with Self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. That lighthouse. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. You know, on the, on the good side of things, Samson didn't make it to Hebrews chapter 11. He's in verse 23. And I'm glad that he made it. But it must have been how he ended his life. It could not have been connected with any other part of his life. And who wants to end up stuck between two pillars and just barely slide in anyway? I want, I want this part of life to be as good as I can make it as well. And it, it can only be as good as your self-control is because that's the only way to put up the right walls that are protective and make you less vulnerable to Satan. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for life 
We thank you so much, Father, for the Holy Spirit that lives in us and is trying to encourage this, this aspect that we just talked about, this what you have called self-control. Help us be, Father, to be people who are controlled by your word, controlled by your spirit, can, just control. That we, that we allow our minds to dwell upon you and upon just the things that you'd want us to. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to do our communion meditation, and uh, I'm just going to go to Philippians chapter 2 because it's a passage of Scripture that points to Jesus's self-control and encourages us too but in Philippians chapter 1 or chapter 2 verse 1 so if there is any encouragement in Christ you have any encouragement in Christ any comfort from his love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy Complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of the same mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know this, what we are doing here right now, partaking of this emblem, is is acknowledging what we have in Jesus for sure. But it's also just understanding the control that Jesus had in every aspect of his life. He never overstepped bounds. Everything he did was to bring glory to his Father God. And therefore God bestowed upon him, you know, raised him above all, glorified him. And that's what God has always promised in his word that he would do for all of us. And so our life doesn't diminish when we show self-control. Our life gets better. You know, in every one of these aspects, I get healthier, I get more respect, I'm just elevated in every way. And Jesus is ultimately, he is my, my encourager. He is, he's my model. He's what I want to be like. Just as Paul was saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Where did Paul get in all those attitudes and ideas about how to handle drinking and food and all of these different aspects. It's his relationship with Jesus. He knew what Jesus would do in that situation. And you do too. You know what to do. And so whatever wall that you are 
you, you have neglected in your life, let this be your motivation to start something new, to get a handle on the one, maybe one of these aspects that we looked at or some other aspect in your life, but to start showing some self-control. God has given you a spirit to give you that ability to do so. Let's pray and partake of this communion today. Father God, we thank you for this cup and this bread that represents his body and his blood. We thank you, Father, that he was our perfect example of self-control. He's a perfect example of every one of these things that we have talked about. We look to him for encouragement. We look to him for motivation. We want to glorify you like he did. We thank you, Father, for how we are forgiven, how we too have been included regardless of our foolishness in the past. We have been included in your love, in your family, through your son Jesus. And we thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.